Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. Among the oldest questions of humans are the following. Who are we? What are we doing here? Where did we come from? How did we get here? And where are we going? Two of these questions are now tractable for scientific inquiry. And they are, where did we come from and how did we get here? And this subsumes the subject of anthropogeny, explaining the origin of humans. Our mission statement is as follows. We use all rational and ethical approaches to seek all verifiable facts from all relevant disciplines to explore and explain the origins of the human phenomenon. I'd like to go back more than 50 years when C.P. Snow pointed out that there were two domains of academia, humanities and sciences, and they seemed to have a difficult time getting together. Well, it's not very different from the ongoing nature-nature debates, and for that matter, it really comes down to culture and genes. Now, if you want to pursue anthropogeny, you need to avoid such false dichotomies. So we need to look at the humanities and the sciences, study nurture with nature, and the theme of today is culture gene coevolution. Well, I'm, I'm very um, grateful to be here and for the opportunity to um, engage in this interdisciplinary conversation. I'm very humbled to be here and uh, um, hope that I have something useful to add to the discussion. I'm not a geneticist, so I'm dealing primarily with, with the origins of culture, in a sense. So... Um, we all toss this word around, culture, and um, in general it's being used to apply beyond humans um, to learn behaviors that differ among different populations of a species. So um, great apes have culture now, orcas have culture, birds have culture, lots of things that we never imagined would be uh, included in this term have culture. But lots of my anthropological colleagues would reserve the word culture for humans. They're very uncomfortable with extending this to great apes. And they, it involves a much more cerebral version of culture that includes shared beliefs, shared values, and symbols. So it includes, in a sense, their definition and implies language. So one of the things we're looking at is the transition from an an ape version of culture to a human version of culture. And we also have to, as the uh, introducer said, to realize that humans not only are dependent on culture, but we're also shaped by culture. That our behavior and our morphology have evolved together in a feedback relationship. The fact that we chose to... uh, consume tubers when, t- when things were bad. We're going to hear a little bit more about this later. Um, created a, uh, set up a selective situation which selected for um, more genes that, uh, con- that help the digestion of starches. 
Um, and the fact that we kill and process animals that were bigger than we are, at least we did so for 99% of human evolution, um, also shaped other aspects of our morphology to be able to do it better. Our weapons evolved, and so did our shoulders. Our stone tools evolved, and so did our wrists to make them better. And we became better communicators with each other, and the speech apparatus and the brain both evolved to facilitate that. So we've come to the point where we can't survive without culture. You leave a human on a desert island and give them no possibility of making anything to help them survive, they wouldn't survive very long. Um, And we have, in order to acquire that culture, we have an extraordinarily long period of dependency relative to the rest of our life cycle. Not just infancy, which many animals have, but a juvenile period, which is normally a very dangerous period for a species. Um, And I would, in in, uh, moving towards the end of human evolution um, and the appearance of our own species, Homo sapiens, um, I would underline three important aspects of our own culture. One is our capacity for technological and economic innovation, our ability to build on past innovations, to ratchet up what, what our forebears have done to build something new and to accumulate culture. It's sometimes called cumulative culture. Um, we also have extraordinarily large social groups that, are, that constitute imagined communities because if you think about who your family is, there are people in your family, I'm sure, as there are in mine, who you've never met. There are people who have, are not even alive while you've been alive that you think of as your family. There may even be, uh, in some cases, members of families who are spiritual beings or who are going to be born in the future. Um, that, and the same goes for communities or nations. All of these things have an imagined, a mental aspect to them, not just a physical on the ground aspect. And these large social groups are essential for faithful, long-term cultural transmission of complex behavior. They also increase survivorship because there are more uh, individuals that you can go to for help if things are bad where you are or in your life. Um, And the third aspect is the world of symbols, which reifies these social groupings and increases the potential for information sharing and also helps survivorship. And there are lots of ways of trying to understand the past. The way I try to understand the past is by the direct evidence that it leaves behind, which, um, as you see, includes at the bottom genetic inheritance, which I think is a direct proxy of what happened in the past. But so are the stones and the bones of the archaeologist, the landforms and sediments where we find the stones and the bones, and the biotic and chemical environmental proxies that are encapsulated in those sites. So the question is, for me, when does modern human culture begin, and was it a gradual or a rapid transformation? If we look at the end of the Pleistocene, we find that the first Homo sapiens in Europe had many of these, or if not all, of these characteristics. Material and economic innovation, symbolic culture, language, large social networks. They had flutes, they had strange sculptures that looked like half human, half animal. Um, And so they lived in a rich symbolic world uh, uh, before 36,000 years ago. Um, Chauvet Cave is another example, a, a beautiful example of some of this imagery and symbolism that we see. But it's not just in Europe. 
that colleagues who think that you had to have cold weather and to grow the uh, symbolic brain to do these things. But we also have uh, finds from Africa. This is a little bit less well-preserved, but you can see that it's got human legs on the right and it's turning into an animal on the left. So we can be sure that this capacity for making these images did not develop in Europe. It came into Europe with the modern humans. Um, And if we go back further into the past, we see that in um, South Africa, Namibia, Tanzania, Ethiopia, Senegal, and uh, the countries of North Africa as well, we find this kind of rich symbolism that implies fully human language. We have beads, we have geometric designs in two different forms, or three different forms. We have them on bone, I don't have a picture. This is on this little slab of ochre, there are two of these. And then we have a series of geometric designs on ostrich eggshell that look very much like the eggshell in the center that was collected in the Kalahari Desert in the 1960s. Um, They're around the hole that was made to use the eggshell as a canteen. And there are 16 or 17 different motifs that repeat themselves through the collection of the eggshells from Deep Clue. So these may be individual styles or group styles or family styles in some way, but they're very distinctive from each other. And these beads are not just at a couple of sites, but um, this is a, a, a map that we made for a paper on African climate in the and the development of early human, modern human culture. Um, you can see that there's this great density of dated sites in South Africa. There's a, um, quite a density in North Africa, but less, and East Africa is being filled in. Um, so there's still a big concentration of, of the record in South Africa. That doesn't mean that that's the place where most of the people lived. It's the place where most of the archaeologists live. Um, but about 10% of these sites have beads. So beads are not a rare phenomenon. They're at uh, lots of the sites. They go back to about 105,000 years ago. So already we're back into um, a, a much earlier time period. We also have between 100 and 60,000 years ago um, point styles that differ as you go around Africa. And this could be argued to be a regional tradition that is shared among a large group of people. Um, And they preferentially use everywhere exotic raw materials, materials they had to go somewhere to get, often 150 to 200 miles away, which implies they're not necessarily going there themselves. There may be some kind of exchange networks going on. But if you think about the problems of exchanging things with people that you never met, Um, If you were a chimpanzee, they would kill you as soon as you came over the horizon. So you have to come up with a way of telling them that you are a friend as you walk into their territory to get some of their stone. Um, And we also have sophisticated hunting technology between 100 and 60,000 years ago. Bone harpoons in the lower left for fishing from some sites that we excavated in the Congo. Um, Stone points from Blombos Cave in the upper left, which were hafted as spearheads. And then microliths from a number of places. These are from Tanzania. There are a lot of them from South Africa as well that were hafted onto what we are pretty sure were arrowheads. So these people had, um, at least by 60 and probably much earlier, bows and arrow technology. So that would have allowed them to uh, wipe out the game or the enemies at a considerable distance 
uh, rather than having to walk up to something and stab it with a spear, which necessarily is a little dangerous for yourself. Um, we also have burials. Um, I showed this one from Kafsa because there's a better picture of it, but there's another one from South Africa with a, sh- a shell pendant that's about 90,000 years old. So these are burials. The distinctive thing about them is that they have grave goods. They were giving these dead people something, some kind of special treatment to um, take with them into another life, to provision them. Sometimes these things are food or beads or ochre to make them look as if they're alive. There's some kind of ceremonial, elaborate symbolism going on in these burials. Um, Eurasia is very different. Neanderthals, 60 to 100,000 years ago, had no personal ornaments. They had very little comparable artifact diversity to what we see in Africa. They had no engraved geometric designs, and I'm my colleague, Francesco Derrico, um, cites some things, but I think he himself would recognize that the objects, the engraved ostrich eggshells with the geometric designs are far more complex than anything we see in the Neanderthal sites, which just could be interpreted as scratches. There's little evidence of large social networks. Most of the stone is coming from local sources, and there are no burials with grave goods. There is a personal ornament, which I show here from Cueva Anton in Spain, dated to 50,000 years ago, when the modern humans are already on the periphery or in Europe. And there are several sites with bone and tooth beads that overlap in age with the ages of the earliest European modern humans. So whether the Neanderthals are actually making these things or whether they're developing them in imitation or whether they're so stressed out that they're finally getting with it and inventing symbolism is an open question. But uh, in any case, it's a very late phenomenon. The Neanderthals, as you see on this map, lived in Europe and into Central Asia. And we've recently become aware of another group of archaic humans who apparently lived in East and Southeast Asia, although the only remain we have of them is from a place in Western Siberia. Now, Western Siberia might be a lovely place today in a big interglacial. Um, It was not a great place to live in the height of a glaciation, so it's very unlikely that this is the homeland of the Denisovans, as they've become to be called. Denisova itself has stone tools similar to those of Neanderthals, and it also has a Neanderthal remain. Um, These Mysterian tools are replaced by tools of early modern humans. And again, there are colleagues who think these early modern humans were made by, tools were made by Denisovans. Seems unlikely because they look like Near Eastern tools and Denisovans don't go that far west. But this is more likely the northwest edge of the Denisovan range, not the center. If we go to South China and Southeast Asia between 100,000 and 30,000 years ago, the tools look like the tools of Homo erectus, a much earlier ancestor. They're very simple, old one kinds of artifacts. So Africa before Homo sapiens. So we've already realized that by 100, 110, 130,000 years ago, humans were pretty modern. And the oldest human fossils attributed to Homo sapiens are between 200 and 160. What about before that, in the Middle Pleistocene? This is, marks a period of major climate variability, which differs by region within Africa. It's more severe at the top and bottom of Africa and less in the middle. But before Homo sapiens, we now have evidence for hafted weapons, for large quantities of ochre, which was being processed into powder, presumably for painting something, your face, your body, your clothes, whatever. Um, We have long-distance networks of uh, where raw material is moving. 
Um, almost all African fossil brain sizes after 500,000 years ago are 1,200 cubic centimeters or larger. That is, they're in our range. And we used to think they didn't do anything special, but that's because we were looking at the Europeans. Almost, um, and they had Lavalois and blade technologies, which many uh, cognitive and archaeological scientists have argued imply sophisticated sequential action, conceptualization, teaching, and very likely language. It's a very difficult technique to learn, and it involves conceptualizing the final form of a piece on a core that you specially prepare to produce that final form. Um, okay, so there are five places in Africa where these long post-Dachelian sequences have been uh, explored, and I've worked in two of them, the Middle Awash and Alorgasali. I'm going to talk for three minutes about Alorgasali. Um, this is a site we finished excavating last summer called Alorgasali BOK2. It has five separate horizons of occupation, and it's under a tuff that you can see on the left is dated to 340,000 years ago, more or less. The date is not fixed totally. Might, we might get a surprise, but repeated uh, samples have confirmed it. And every black spot you see on the floor in this picture is a piece of obsidian. There is no obsidian in the Alorgasali Basin. Um, and the obsidian here, this is a scale at the bottom left of uh, 28 or 30 kilometers. Um, the sources from BLK2 come primarily from the south, about um, 30, 40 kilometers away, and from the north, about 60 kilometers away. Um, and by the time you get to the north, you're getting uphill into um, better watered kinds of environments. But if we go to a slightly younger site that's still probably older than 300,000, it's a little across a little valley, um, we find obsidian from the Iburu complex, which would have been more than 100 kilometers away on foot. So long-distance transport of this material. What are they doing with the material? They're making small and medium-sized points that were hafted. They're making bladelets and little bladelet cores and small end scrapers. Um, and Lavalois technology is the dominant technology. It's also more than 500,000 years old at both the Lorgasali and Wonderwork Cave in South Africa. Um, how do you maintain a large social network? Um, you use pigment. And we have this and other pieces of um, stone that were used to grind ochre. Um, this is uh, the chart I published in 2000 with Sally McBurdy, and all the red lines show where we've con gone since 2000 in pushing back some of these distinctions of um, behavioral innovations that we noted in that paper. And just to give you a line, here's the Homo sapiens uh, appearance, first appearance datum, and you can see the lines go well back before anything we're going to call Homo sapiens. And just to show you, we also have discontinuous preservation, which could be showing us that we have these things in perhaps small packages that appear and disappear. Perhaps the people go somewhere else for a while and then they come back. But um, we have periods of time when we don't have a lot of evidence and periods when we do. But you can see that the record is not enormous for all of Africa. So in conclusion, I have a, just a few points which I'll uh, read very quickly. Most technological innovations are older in Africa, and they imply at least four to five out-of-Africa events, not just two. And Africa had probably consistently fairly large populations compared to Eurasia, because it's a wonderful place, particularly East Africa, to be a terrestrial um, herbivore. And 
Um, as a friend in this audience uh, once pointed out to me, it's wonderful to have two rainy seasons a year because then uh, if one of them fails, you have the second one to hope for. Um, there's the De Neanderthal Denise have been split from our ancestral lineage may be one such event. The onset of accelerated behavioral evolution, innovation, considerably predates the Homo sapiens in Africa and the Neanderthal split. So Neanderthals eventually share pigment use, Lavawa technology, and probably cognitive capacities for language. Um, but later Africans with projectile weapons and large-scale networks would have held a major competitive advantage over Neanderthals and eventually, as we know, wiped them out. The discontinuous nature of the African record implies small or fluctuating skill groups with potential for extinction, especially in subtropical ends of the continent. And it also uh, argues that ancestral morphs and artifact styles could well have survived and did survive. The, um, the second uh, early, homo, early homo sapiens in Ethiopia is associated with the Acheulean, with Hanexes. And so we, have, uh, we also have our, a new archaic human that was described this past year um, from uh, Nigeria that's dated to 11,000 years ago. So again, there are mysteries in Africa, always something new um, from Africa. And I'd just like to thank um, CARTA and the organizers of this conference, um, many of my closer collaborators on uh, several of these projects, and the funding organizations. Thank you. So uh, my talk here is to give you a little insight into how, I, at least I think, uh, uh, culture influenced uh, the evolution of human genes in the uh, recent and perhaps not quite so recent uh, past. So what kinds of uh, evolutionary relationships between genes and culture might we imagine? There are several uh, modern proposals on the table that uh, uh, reflect uh, the old dichotomy between nature and, and nurtures uh, that uh, uh, propose, for example, that uh, uh, culture is really largely under the control of genes and natural selection on genes. The most prominent uh, uh, spokesman for this point of view, I think, is Edward Wilson, who has the this uh, proposed with uh, Charles Lumsden clear back in 1981 that a culture was on a kind of a, of a, a genetic leash that, uh, that natural selection acting on genes would give us a psychology that then uh, shaped uh, culture in ways that were uh, dictated ultimately by uh, the survival value for our genes. So it would all boil down to uh, a selection on genes. The opposite kind of uh, hypothesis is that uh, uh, cultural evolution at some point took over from genes in, in human uh, uh, evolutionary history, and genes no longer have uh, anything interesting uh, going on in terms of, uh, of evolution. And this is a, a common idea, and it's, uh, it's uh, perhaps uh, uh, tacit throughout most of the social sciences that social scientists don't have to worry about uh, genes and genetic evolution because it's all, all the interesting stuff is going on in culture. And 
the position that I uh, uh, defend and I'm going to talk about here is that uh, the relationship is, is much more uh, intimate between uh, uh, genes and culture, and in particular that culture often leads the gene-culture co-evolution process. So uh, cultural evolution creates novel environments, and then those novel environments exert selection pressures on uh, uh, genes. So that uh, uh, genes play, a, uh, excuse me, culture has played a very active role in the uh, uh, formation of our of human nature, if you want to think of it that way. So the old nature-nurture dichotomy really uh, has to be broken down into uh, three kinds of elements that are important in human behavior. First, genes. Uh, second, culture. And, and third, uh, individual learning. So we, uh, the, we get the direct impress of the environment on ourselves, and then we get the, uh, the evolution of these two inheritance uh, uh, systems. Uh, part of this uh, depends upon the idea that uh, uh, culture is a form of inheritance. So it's a lot like genes in, in uh, uh, some important respects. You get your, your culture from other people, from your parents and from other people that influence you. Your uh, peers, uh, a large number of other people may influence you. But it, it has in common with genes that something is, is uh, uh, transmitted, that uh, uh, behavioral variants are acquired by imitation and teaching and, and spread among people people, much like uh, genes uh, spread. But of course, there are these uh, uh, dramatic differences. And one of the most important differences is that uh, uh, culture is a, is a form of inheritance of acquired variation. Uh, I mean, a, a meeting like this is uh, all about uh, uh, the inheritance of acquired variation. Those of us who speak think we've learned something uh, in our scientific work, and we're trying to uh, teach it to you to convince you that uh, we've learned uh, something interesting. So uh, we're uh, an example right here, a laboratory example of, uh, of how that uh, system uh, works. We can also uh, uh, use the uh, much larger community of people than just our parents to acquire uh, our uh, culture from. So if uh, dad is a poor hunter or, or uh, mom can't weave a basket to save her soul, then we can learn from aunts and uncles and, and other people. And of course, uh, we uh, dramatically amplify that kind of thing in the modern world when, when formal teaching uh, comes along and we learn a large number of skills in formal settings uh, uh, by professional uh, uh, teachers. But nevertheless, the, the pattern that uh, uh, so struck Darwin of descent with modification is something that obtains in the cultural system as well as in the, the uh, uh, genetic system. And uh, so culture links learning and inheritance th through this uh, inheritance of acquired variation. And the important part of that is that it uh, means that cultures can evolve much more rapidly than, than gene pools. So it adds to natural selection. Uh, natural selection may still act on cultural variation, but uh, we add to it the ability to, do, to use learning and to use selective borrowing from other people to uh, uh, cause uh, uh, evolution to happen at a much more rapid uh, uh, pace. So Darwin himself was already a pretty sophisticated cultural evolutionist, and uh, you can extract uh, passages from The Descent of Man like the one I have here in which he remarks that, uh, or it's really an opinion, that in highly civilized nations, natural selection is no longer so important, and the uh, uh, continuing evolution depends more upon uh, the teaching of children and good education, he says, and uh, high standards of excellence uh, depending upon the best and the brightest to uh, uh, acquiring culture from the best and the brightest, and, and these are then embodied in laws and customs that are 
taught directly to uh, uh, children. So this, uh, uh, he, he just barely uses the word uh, culture in, uh, in the modern sense in one place, but uh, it's uh, full of ideas like tradition and customs that uh, are related to the modern concept of, uh, of culture. Unfortunately, The Descent of Man was an unduly neglected book, particularly after about 1900, and, and Darwin's influence was uh, 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 lost in four three quarters of a century or so. So how can we imagine that uh, culture could have a major impact on uh, human evolution, that we could be uh, uh, substantially uh, uh, made by cultural evolution, even to the point of, of our genes uh, following, uh, adapting to cultures that we invent? Uh, so in the first place, uh, culture has been important for at least a quarter of a million years, probably more like uh, two and a half million years. So uh, Allison's talk just before mine gave you a, a sketch of what we know about uh, about uh, that. Uh, And if cultural evolution is faster than genetic evolution, then culture is going to often play the leading role in the evolution of of this uh, gene culture coevolution system, not not a lagging role. Uh, So we have this long period of time in which uh, culture and genes interacted and in which the uh, cultural system could have played a leading uh, role. And so cultural processes create novel environments, and and then uh, such environments lead to selection on the uh, the genes. So just to reiterate uh, uh, the uh, point of the previous speaker, we have this uh, uh, succession of uh, fairly sophisticated and increasingly sophisticated stone tools over that uh, long uh, two-and-a-half million-year longer period of human evolution. Now, uh, so what direct evidence do we have that uh, changed cultural environments uh, have imposed themselves uh, substantially on genes? Quite recently, we have made a major transformation in our environments, particularly in the uh, elaboration of agricultural subsistence systems, which have replaced... Uh, meat largely in our diet by plant materials, and, and uh, we've done uh, things like invent dairying and, and generated uh, uh, an entirely new nutritional system for most human populations that no longer depend upon hunted and gathered uh, uh, resources. And, and this seems to have led to, uh, uh, when we survey uh, the genome looking for uh, events of of strong selection in the gene, something we can do uh, looking for selective sweeps, as the jargon goes. We can estimate the uh, age of these uh, sweeps by the amount of of material on either side of the uh, allele under selection that have been uh, uh, dragged to near fixation by the uh, selective sweep of the target gene because of linkage. So we could take it, and then this linkage breaks down gradually over time. So it provides a kind of a molecular clock to date these uh, uh, selective sweeps. And at least if the preliminary data that's in the... uh, Hawks and Harpening et al. paper in 2007 is indicative that there was a huge wave of, of change associated with, with agriculture. So that's a, a recent very dramatic change. There are some quite convincing cases were actually known before uh, modern uh, molecular genetics. So in uh, human populations with dairying, most adults uh, uh, secrete lactase uh, uh, throughout their life and uh, can, uh, can digest the sugars in milk uh, uh, throughout their life. In, most, in other mammals, in most human populations, this gene is shut down about the time of weaning because it's no longer uh, useful. Only humans with dairying uh, get much milk uh, to drink after they're uh, weaned. There are many hemoglobin polymorphisms that uh, turn out to be adaptations to uh, uh, exposure to malarial parasites, and uh, 
And these uh, polymorphisms uh, uh, are all seem to be quite recent because human populations seem not to have been dense enough to uh, sustain uh, malaria uh, as a, a specialist parasite on humans until the advent of agriculture. So this is another case of the imposition of an agricultural environment, in this case uh, making humans dense enough to support diseases. Many other epidemic diseases have a similar history that uh, came to aff- afflict humans after the development of agriculture and more dense populations. So there's a, a presumably going to turn out to be a large raft of these. Some of these things are, are much more spe- speculative. So uh, there's some idea that uh, genes that affect uh, behavior might have been uh, selected by the advent of, of, uh, of societies that are hierarchical. So there's a proposal that certain serotonin transporter genes that make people more tolerant of inequality have arisen in the last few thousand years as inegalitarian state-level societies have replaced the egalitarian societies of our hunting and gathering days. And then the human dispersal out of Africa was presumably led by cultural innovation. So when people penetrated from tropical Africa, subtropical Africa, into uh, the uh, mammoth steppe into Europe and, and these other cold, even paraglacial environments, we, we built fires and, and made shelters and, and, and learned to make uh, highly tailored clothing. But uh, in addition, uh, uh, a considerable number of, of genetic adaptations occurred as we dragged our, as culture dragged us into these uh, novel environment. Skin pigmentation is a well-worked-out one in which uh, exposure to low-UV environments, and particularly in northwestern Europe. Northwestern Europe is the cloudiest uh, environment in the world, and, and so it's no... Uh, and light-colored skin allows uh, people to... Uh, to uh, synthesize more uh, vitamin D. Adaptations to high altitudes. Uh, uh, there's an interesting adaptation in Tibet in which uh, the, uh, the way in which uh, the humans respond to uh, low, al- low oxygen by producing uh, fewer red blood cells than they otherwise uh, uh, than the rest of us. Uh, it turns out that that uh, confers health advantages on, on people living in high altitudes. And it's present in Tibet, uh, but not in the Andes. And the Tibetans, uh, Tibet was settled uh, well, 30,000 years ago or so in the Andes, not until a, until a few thousand years ago. So the Andean people have not yet uh, acquired that ad- adaptation if they ever uh, would. A conjecture here then is that uh, culture may have uh, played a big role in, in all of the uh, attributes of, of humans. And, and one particularly interesting one is, is human social behavior. So humans are, are docile. They live in these large groups. Allison already um, mentioned that. And, and so uh, might humans have uh, uh, acquired these uh, proclivities through some form of group selection. It's a, it occurred to people uh, going clear back to Darwin that people look like they've been selected as tribes, that we have <clears throat> loyalty to tribes, we recognize a boundary of tribes, we uh, act altruistically towards other tribal members, we uh, behave honestly with other tribal members, not necessarily so honestly with regard to others. And, and Darwin thought, uh, and again in The Descent of Man has this little passage that suggests that that humans indeed are, are group selected. 
So this is uh, just a quote. I, you've had time to uh, glance at it uh, uh, from the, again from the descent of man. So one of my uh, students uh, uh, a couple of years ago, uh, Adrian Bell, uh, got the idea that uh, maybe we could look at the uh, variation between uh, human groups, uh, the genetic variation and the cultural variation, and put it on the same uh, scale. So the, the problem with selection among groups uh, from a genetic point of view is that, that uh, it's a little bit of migration uh, tends to uh, homogenize the, uh, uh, the genetics of the t- of two groups. And, and it, uh, human groups are really not very different genetically, which means it's hard to imagine that the, uh, uh, the group selection process that operated on, on humans operated directly on genes. So there in the left of that diagram are the FSTs. This is a proportion of variance that's between groups relative to the total genetic variance in those bars on the narrow bars on the left. And you can see they're quite small. And the, the gray bars are the uh, uh, cultural variation based upon the World Values Survey. And you can see that it runs about an order of magnitude or st- uh, maybe a little bit more higher than, than the genetic uh, variation. So there's lots more uh, cultural variation to um, work with. The genetic data is from Cavalli, Swartz, and colleagues' famous compendium of genetic uh, variation in human populations. So the... Uh, the uh, picture then that we have is that humans could have evolved by gene culture coevolution, and humans uh, are essentially uh, then became a, a domesticated animal that uh, that uh, we uh, uh, were uh, domesticated by. Uh, this cultural group selection process. So we still have these ancient uh, social instincts. We tend to dominate other people. People are are not uh, are often selfish and ne- and they're often nepotistic. Uh, uh, but on the other hand, we also have uh, uh, tribal scale institutions and and uh, uh, attitudes that uh, uh, that allow us to have uh, uh, cooperation in much larger groups. So if it, if there was uh, first cultural group selection and then primitive uh, norms and institutions and uh, the evolution of, of emotions like uh, sympathy and patriotism and, and more docile uh, behavior uh, and the evolution of symbolic uh, group boundaries uh, that uh, certainly are very important in human groups. Then uh, we could uh, exert uh, uh, social selection on people who deviate from uh, from the rules of uh, society. This is something we uh, certainly do uh, uh, today. If uh, people don't obey the rules, they go to prison, and uh, uh, p- uh, people in prisons uh, don't have the same reproductive success as people out of prison. So there's social selection that, that way can be, can be very important. So uh, this is uh, uh, a picture of a, a chimpanzee brain and a chimpanzee testicles. Uh, the brains are on the right and the chimpanzee testicles are on, on the left. And uh, chimpanzee males are really rough customers. And, uh, uh, and part of the reason is that they're, you know, I mean, people think of human males, particularly juvenile males, as testosterone poisoned. But uh, uh, we got nothing on, uh, on chimpanzees. Uh, so... Uh, there's, uh, I can't, if any of you here are pathologists or know a pathologist or do with, deal with human anatomy, I'd love to have a picture that, uh, uh, of human testicles and brains that uh, uh, correspond to the, uh, to the, the uh, chimpanzee ones there. I haven't yet been able to pre- persuade anybody that I know to, to do this. So the best I could come up with uh, is this uh, uh, picture here. 
my picture here with, uh, there's a human testicle, it's about the size of a walnut, I guess, and the human brain about three times the size of a, of a chimpanzee brain. And so you can imagine what that picture would, uh, would look like if, if I could put my hands on, on one. Okay, that's the end of my remarks. Uh, thank you very much for your attention. As we've heard from uh, a number of talks today, we know that humans originated somewhere in Sub-Saharan Africa, and from there they expanded to occupy essentially every corner of the Earth landmass. And in doing so, they have encountered a tremendous diversity of habitats and environments, environments that differ in terms of um, climate, which is a major focus of our research, but also in terms of nutrient availability, resource availability, degree of solar radiation and so forth. And these environments are illustrated here in this map of the ecoregions of the continents. And so these different aspects of human environments have exerted strong selective pressures on uh, human metabolic processes and physiological processes. And uh, certainly um, they, uh, adaptations have arisen in response to these selective pressures. So environmental change is truly a defining feature of human evolution, um, where in part is due to uh, movement of populations, therefore experiencing new environments, but there is also variation um, of habitats and environments over time, illustrated here by in this diagram that has population size on the vertical axis and time on the horizontal axis. And as you can see, there are a number of changes uh, marked by uh, different transitions uh, during human evolution. Among these transitions, we recognize two as perhaps the most important ones, meaning the ones that have probably been associated with uh, most selective pressures. Uh, the first one is the out-of-Africa expansion, which uh, occurred sometime earlier than 40,000 years ago. During this transition, uh, humans were exposed to col colder climates, lower degrees of UV radiation, different nutrients, and also uh, lower pathogen loads. And then much more recently, sometime uh, more recently than 9,000 years ago in the Neolithic Revolution, uh, humans shifted away from a subsistence based on foraging, which characterized much of human existence up to that point, and the adoption of different subsistence strategies based on horticulture, pastoralism, and intensive agriculture. Um, these changes, uh, in turn, induced a number of other changes, uh, for example, at the level of the diet, which became much more rich in carbohydrates, and milk became a major uh, staple of adult diet. Uh, but also there were massive increases in population densities, which led to um, uh, an increase in pathogen loads, an increase in trans uh, transmission rates of infectious diseases. So uh, really, uh, as I said, environmental change has been a major defining feature of human evolution. And humans have encountered this tremendous diversity of environments, responding with cultural, behavioral, and genetic adaptations that led ultimately to the wonderful diversity of phenotypes and cultures that we see in human populations today. 
Some of the phenotypes that vary across human populations are actually diseases. In fact, many common diseases have significant interethnic differences, and these include diseases of the immune response, like asthma, multiple sclerosis, but also metabolic diseases, like type 2 diabetes or different types of cancers, like prostate cancer. There are some phenotypes that, in addition to varying greatly across uh, human populations, they also have striking geographic uh, patterns. This is the case, for example, for body size and proportions, which are known based on classical work to be correlated with climate variables. As shown here on the vertical axis, we have the body mass index, and on the horizontal axis, the mean annual temperature in worldwide human populations, so that populations living at opposite ends of the climatic range, like this Maasai in uh, uh, eastern sub-Saharan Africa and this Inuit from uh, eastern Siberia, have rather different body size and proportions, which suggests that humans, just like most other mammals, conform to general ecological rules that suggest that body size and proportions are adaptations to different uh, types of climates. Um, another phenotype that has striking differences across ethnic groups and also striking geographic patterns is pigmentation. We know that pig uh, skin reflectance, which is a measure of pigmentation, is strongly correlated in worldwide populations with latitude or distance from the equator, which, uh, as we've heard before, um, suggests that variation in pigmentation is adaptive with regard to different degrees of shortwave radiation. So these are two cases in which phenotypic variation appears to be a function of a particular environmental variable. So we thought that, based on this information, that one could look for genetic variants that have similar geographic patterns with the idea that these genetic variants might be adaptive with regard to different aspects of the environment. And we do that by using this approach that we refer to as environmental correlations, where essentially we look for correlations between allele frequencies and specific aspects of the environment. So we first start by classifying populations based on the environment they live in. And then we search for genetic variants whose frequency is correlated with the environmental variable of interest in the populations that we studied. And then if we find a correlation shown in this diagram here between the environmental variable and allele frequency, we infer that this is an adaptive variant with regard to environmental variation. However, if the allele frequency is not predicted by the environmental variable, we assume that this variant does not confer a selective advantage in different uh, environments as defined by the particular environmental factors that we've considered. So we use this approach on a particular data set, which includes more than 640,000 autosomal markers, uh, which were genotyped in more than uh, 1,300 individuals from 61 indigenous populations worldwide, the distribution of which is shown here on this map. With regard to the environment, we use a set of uh, environmental variables that, that can be broadly classified into three categories, climate variables, which are all continuous, and then uh, ecoregion and subsistence variables, which are categorical and analyzed as dichotomous variable. The climate, variable, um, the climate variables were chosen 
um, among those that are most likely to reflect the impact of cold stress and heat stress um, on human physiology, uh, as well as different degrees of UV radiation. Um, ecoregion is, as I said, a categorical variable that mainly contains information about climate, but as I said, it's, uh, um, it uses information in a dichotomous manner. And then the subsistence variables can be further subdivided into mode of subsistence and main dietary component where uh, the subsistence mode includes foraging, horticulture, pastoralism, and advanced agriculture. And the main dietary components are cereals, roots and tubers, fat, milk, and meat. So we've applied this um, approach to this genome-wide data set, and I'm just going to show you a couple of examples. Um, so in these two diagrams, which reflect two uh, strong signals of correlation between uh, a SNP and in this case a, for a foraging subsistence, while in this case it's a correlation uh, at this SNP between allele frequency and relative humidity. What we find is that on the horizontal axis, we have the individual populations but grouped based on the major geographic area. And then on the vertical axis, we have allele frequencies. Now, if we focus on the left portion of this slide, um, I color-coded the populations, or at least the, the categories of populations. In red, we have the foragers. In light blue, the non-foragers. And then this horizontal line indicates the mean allele frequency for populations within a certain category and within a certain geographic area. And so what you can see is that the signal that we find is that not all foragers have the same allele frequencies and all non-foragers have a different and identical allele frequency. Rather, what we find is that there is a consistent shift in allele frequencies between foragers and non-foragers that is observed in multiple geographic regions as if selection acted on subdivided populations in parallel to increase the frequency of a particular variant that is advantageous with regard to that particular uh, aspect of the environment. And this SNP, codes, this, uh, SNP is in a gene that codes for interleukin-22, which is a, um, a potent mediator of the innate immune response. And so it may make sense with regard to the changes in pathogens associated with the foraging to non-foraging subsistence. On the right, we have a correlation between allele frequencies and a climate variable, which is continuous. And again, the pattern that we see is that there are clients of allele frequencies that repeat themselves in multiple geographic locations. And in this case, this is a non-synonymous substitution in the keratin-77 gene, which is expressed in the ducts of actin sweat glands. And therefore, it makes sense that this uh, SNP might reflect adaptations to heat stress in uh, influence the way the body can uh, cool down its temperature by sweating. Another example in this case with a dietary component was observed at this PLRP2 uh, gene. Um, this, is, this gene codes for an enzyme that metabolizes galactolipids, which are a main component of plants. 
And interestingly, what we found is that there is a polymorphic stop codon. So in other words, this is a, a, a shorter protein um, that occurs at higher frequency in populations that specialize in cereal compared to populations that do not, as shown here, where the red um, indicates the frequency of the variant in populations that specialize in cereals versus uh, the blue populations. So again, these consistent shifts in allele frequencies that are observed in multiple independent locations. And the interesting thing is that uh, we predict, based on the biochemical evidence, that this top codon, even though it results in a truncated protein, this protein is more active. And therefore, it makes a lot of sense that it's found in populations that have a plant-based diet, which is rich in cereal. Another type of analysis that one can do uh, to learn more about the biology of these signals, but also to uh, sort of increase our confidence that we are finding something real, is to look at whether these signals are enriched in genes that have specific biological functions. And so we looked at dietary specializations in roots and tubers, which is one of the classes where we have some of the strongest signals. And what we find is that the two biological pathways that are most enriched in these signals of environmental correlations are starch and sucrose metabolism and folate biosynthesis. And that's actually what you would expect for roots and tubers, which are rich in starch and poor in folates. And so it's very comforting to see uh, this particular result. With regard to uh, adaptations to the polar ecoregion, we find uh, several metabolic pathways that are involved, involved in energy metabolism and therefore in the production of heat and the maintenance of body temperature in the face of a cold climate. Another type of approach that we can use to learn about uh, the biology of these environmental adaptations is by comparing our results with those from genome-wide association studies. So as I just explained, this, uh, our approach connects particular polymorphisms with specific aspects of the environments that are considered proxies for the selective pressures that underlie the signals that we observe. Genome-wide association studies, in contrast, connect polymorphism with specific phenotypes. And so now if we look at the strongest signal from our analysis, as well as the strongest signal from genome-wide association studies, and we ask which polymorphisms have strong environmental correlations as well as strong association with phenotypes, we can start to make a connection along this side of this triangle and ask questions such as which phenotypes were acted on by natural selection and which specific aspects of the environment shaped these phenotypes, which selective pressures shaped these phenotypes. When we do this exercise, we find that there are many SNPs that have strong signals with climate and are associated with pigmentation and tanning phenotypes in genome-wide association studies. This is exactly what we would have expected based on what I told you in the beginning, that the pigmentation phenotypes have this clinal distribution with a gradual uh, change as a distance, uh, as a function of distance from the equator, as a function of solar radiation. 
Um, the other result that we have that perhaps is less expected but very interesting is that many of the overlap between the two analyses identify the, um, phenotypes of the immune response and in particular autoimmune diseases like multiple sclerosis, systemic lupus erythematosus, celiac disease, Crohn's disease, psoriasis, and so forth. Um, this is also not entirely unexpected. Um, because we know that there is a great deal of uh, diversity in the way in, there is a, a very striking pattern of the geographic distribution of pathogens, which is very established in the literature, that pathogen diversity decreases as a function of distance from the equator. And it was shown a few years ago that climate, and in particular humidity, are very important factors in shaping this gradient, this latitudinal gradient of diversity. So it makes sense that we find uh, these particular observations which suggest that pathogens are probably the true selective pressure acting on these polymorphisms and that climate is essentially uh, acting on pathogens and which in turn act on, on, uh, on polymorphisms. So we are looking basically at the indirect effect of uh, climate on um, selected alleles. Now, by no means um, these uh, um, pathogens represent the only selective pressure shaping this kind of um, signals, but it certainly, uh, as based on this analysis, um, uh, uh, it's, in, it's certainly a, an important component of it. So um, to conclude, uh, I showed you that there are uh, very strong genome-wide signals of adaptations to climate, to ecoregion, to dietary components and subsistence in uh, worldwide population samples. Um, many of the signals are found in genes whose function can be easily connected with the biology of the adaptations and the specific uh, environmental factor that was used to identify the signals. Um, the signals are due to relatively subtle, and I, I didn't uh, talk much about this, but relatively subtle, but consistent shifts in allele frequencies that occur in multiple geographic regions uh, across uh, populations that experience different environments. And we found that adaptation to different climates make an important contribution to pigmentation phenotypes, as we expected, as well as to diseases of the immune response. Um, I'd like to put a plug for this dbcline. This is a database that we have uh, generated in my lab. You can find it at this uh, URL, and you can search the database for signals of environmental correlations uh, with 21 environmental variables, and we have links to other selection browsers. And then finally, I want to thank uh, the people in my lab and my collaborators uh, who contributed uh, to this particular research. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.